Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. We've got a very special guest this week, which I'll tell you all about in just a bit. But first, I'm sure you know that Short Treks are back on CBS All Access, and that means Discoverage is back too. Six all-new short films set in the Star Trek universe will be debuting one a month until the premiere of Picard in January of 2020. And I and my co-host Ella Pearson of the Generations Geek podcast will be releasing a recap and discussion episode for each one. We call our show Discoverage, and we've got two of them out currently for the most recent two short treks, as well as episodes for last year's round of short treks and the first two seasons of Discovery. Ella and I are joined by various guests as we discuss live the entirety of Star Trek on CBS. You can find those shows in our show feed or by going to enterprisingindividuals.com. And while you're on the internet, please do us the honor of following us on Facebook and Twitter at EISTPOD and join our Facebook discussion group, Enterprising Interlocutions. Also, join us on the Just Enough Trope Discord and chat with us and other fans about your favorite Star Trek episodes, films, TV shows, and more. I'll leave a link to join our Discord in our show notes. We'll see you there. And please consider joining our crew by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTPOD. Every week we've been examining a facet of the utopian world of Star Trek this year, the plausibilities and implausibilities of the socio-economic techno-anarchist society of the Federation. And sometimes I feel <laughs> like I'm building a case against it. I'm, I'm calling witnesses in the form of guests, submitting episodes as evidence, and arguing that we may never reach the paradise that Trek seems to promise. After all, we've done just about everything but meet pointy-eared aliens from Vulcan, and we're nowhere near ending our petty conflicts and providing for everyone. However, it would be premature, I would hope, to make a summary judgment against humanity just yet. So hold up, Q, I see you there. And even our heroes like Kirk and Picard often find themselves drafted to advocate for the value of humanity as a flawed but promising species. Captain Picard is particularly skilled as an orator, and even Jim Kirk has talked his fair share of computers into self-destruction. But what application do those skills have in a world that is presumably beyond disagreements over money and property? Gene Roddenberry envisioned a world where the lawyers would retire in lieu of being killed, for there'd be no economic or contractual disputes to arbitrate and the few remaining criminals would be re-educated, yikes, instead of needing to defend themselves in court. But would a world without any legal or contractual concerns even be possible or desirable? What about societies outside the Federation? How do we observe and honor their laws? Who draws up the treaties? Contracts for mining rights? What about extradition? Who helps you keep your half of the planet in your divorce? How do you trademark Chateau Picard? Where can I get this document notarized? John Locke wrote that wherever law ends, tragedy begins, and Rousseau answered that laws are always useful to those with possessions and harmful to those who have nothing. But if Gene Roddenberry got these two guys high and they played a few rounds of hacky sack, what might the compromise between those two positions look like? 
That's the question that I asked Jen Dahlman on this episode. Jen is a patent prosecution specialist with her degree in legal studies and criminal justice. And together we try to sketch a picture of what the law might look like in the 23rd and 24th centuries, from crime and punishment in the Trek universe to interstellar treaties, all the way down to contracts with the devil. It's a fascinating discussion, and Jen applies our contemporary legal principles to several different episodes of Trek series. It's great. I hope you enjoy our talk. Jen is also the co-host of a podcast called Rosemary's Ladies, where she and her co-host Molly watch and discuss horror movies, bad movies, and bad horror movies. It's a great addition to your podcast feed for this spooky month of October, so find out more at rosemarysladies.com. There's a link in the show notes if you need it. We'll be back next week with more spooky Star Trek content, so join us then. For now, place your right hand on the Star Trek Concordance and swear to watch the Trek, the whole Trek, and nothing but the Trek. And with that, let's get underway. My guest today is one half of the hosting duo behind Rosemary's Ladies, a comedy film podcast where two mythical bitches do witty retellings of horror movies, bad movies, and bad horror movies. It's Jen Dahlman. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to talk. My two favorite things, law and Star Trek. And I should mention that that's, I pulled that from your website, the, the B word there. That's your guys' uh, language, so. <laughs> yes. Don't don't at me. Uh, I'm glad, but, yes. And I'm glad that you pulled it because my co-host is always the one who does the intro. So before we started recording, I was like, man, I hope I uh, hope I know what to say because I never have to do the introduction for the podcast. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So one of you is, uh, she's the, the sort of person who's uh, doing all the business and then you're just there. You're the talent. You're the color. <laughs> I'm, I'm there to, you know, I'm, you know, if you ever watch It's Always Sunny, um, they ha- have like the group <laughs> dynamics figured out. So like the brains, the muscle, um, I'm the wild card of the group. So I'm okay. just there <laughs> right, to sure. shake things up, get us into some scrapes, you know, have a good time. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, you're the, uh, you're the Wolverine if this was the X-Men. Yes, I'm just here to run around and cause cause a little mayhem. <laughs> Maybe make you laugh doing it. Uh, I don't know how funny Wolverine is, but yeah, I think that definitely fits. <laughs> I always ask new guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How'd you become a Star Trek fan? So I have memories of like, you know, being six or seven and coming home and watching Star Trek Voyager after school. Mm. But really the like, the I think... The thing that I identify most with making me a Star Trek fan is when I was about 13, my dad sat me down and was like, we're going to watch this episode of Star Trek TOS. So we sat down. It's the Naked Time episode. Uh-huh. And at the end, I was like, that was fine. And I went in my room and I just cried because I was so emotionally affected by Spock's breakdown of his inability to tell his mother that he loved her yeah and i was so affected by that that but i was also like i can't let people know i like star trek because then i won't be cool (laughs) um so i maintained that i was like oh well you know it's just fine and then every morning um on tv land they would play i think it was at 5 a.m it was either at 5 a.m or 6 a.m but they would play an episode of Star Trek TOS. So it set my alarm super early and then sneak out of my room into our computer room where there's this tiny little like 10 inch TV. And I would just like crouch in front of the TV and watch Star Trek. <laughs> That's dedication to get up at 5 a.m. to watch Star Trek. Yes, I was very dedicated. And, and b- before I moved out to go to college, I was telling my parents, like, I'm going to tell you all the bad things I did. And 
it really wasn't anything bad, but it was all stuff like when I was 12, I used to wake up early and watch Star Trek, even though I probably would have gotten in trouble for it. They're like, we don't care about that. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, that's, that's bad. Yeah. One time I almost snuck out of the house, but then I didn't. And they're like, okay. I love this ritual of you like confessing to all these things, like as you are leaving the house. For me, it would be like, "Whew, I got out of there. I'm over the <laughs> over the state line. You know, they can't catch me." Right. Well, I, yeah, I was moving from Oklahoma to Minnesota, so I was like, "Well, I guess now is a good time to tell them all of like the things, the bad things I did." And it, <laughs> yeah. But it was all like it was just all really minor things, like getting up early to watch Star Trek. Um, almost, I, one time I thought about sneaking out, um, one time when I was like four, I pinched my sister and she cried and I lied about it. <laughs> that, that might and still, I, maybe it. I didn't tell them that. <laughs> I'm just confessing well, all over the place. I can't I keep it. I guess so. Uh, how did Rosemary's Ladies get started? Let's see. I think we started just a little over a year ago. Um, uh-huh. Molly and I met uh, in the theater troupe and we just sort of immediately became best friends and we would always hang out and watch movies together and we love 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 bad movies horror movies and of course bad horror movies are our absolute favorite yeah. and one day we were just like we had sort of been talking about starting a podcast for like maybe a month and one day we were just like let's just do it. Like, we'll, we're going to record, uh, we're going to watch a movie, take some notes, record on Molly's phone and just kind of go from there. And that's what we did. And I think we have improved a lot because we definitely didn't know what we were doing. The first couple episodes, you can definitely tell we're recorded on a phone. We had no idea like how to edit anything, where to start with like hosting, but it was definitely kind of a lot of, uh, flying by the seat of our pants, but now we know what we're doing and we kind of feel like we're professionals. Yeah, that's the best way. I mean, Captain Kirk says it, you know, we learn by doing. Right. Uh, you've covered all kinds of genre films on the podcast, not just horror movies, um, although you've done uh, Leprechaun 2, I think was your uh, recent one. Yeah, um, that was one we just did. And uh, do, you, do you know about the, uh, the reboot that's coming? <laughs> The, the Warwick re- Davis, yeah, the Warwick Davis free reboot that they're going to do. I, that, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm a little sad that he's not coming back, but also I get it. Like, yeah, I, I get it. it they're not great movies. Um, <laughs> I do kind of love Leprechaun though. It's, yeah. it's not good, but it does hold a really special place in my heart. But like we just did um, Child's Play last week and like the original one and it's so there's just so many remakes that everyone is doing like you know they did like a sort of halloween remake i think they've like rebooted that with like the rob zombie one but there's a million of those they remade friday the 13th nightmare on elm street now child's play now leprechaun so there's a there's a lot of movies we have to cover i think warwick davis said that he just doesn't like now that he has kids he -hmm. doesn't he feels weird doing like those movies like and it's not that he's it's not that nobody's gonna force his kids to watch them but he's just thinks about it in a different way now that he's a, a dad yeah that's that's fair because some, <laughs> some of the writing he doesn't want to be <laughs> the, the, the dad who that for his kids the dad who's in uh, the leprechaun movies i guess 
Right. Well, you know, he now he can just be like, well, let's just watch Star Trek, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you guys just uh, you covered Prince of Darkness recently and you were pretty hard on uh, Prince of Darkness and uh, was... Uncle, Uncle John. Oh, yeah, I I I didn't love that movie. And I think part of the reason I was especially hard on it is because I um, I haven't seen the thing in a long time, but I really mm. liked it. Halloween is a classic. Yeah. So just it was just like what happened? It, the concept is kind of confusing, but it, I like the idea of it. I like the idea of there being this, like, you know, I think I mentioned, I I really like the Da Vinci Code as cheesy and terrible <laughs> as that book is, but I really like this, like, you know, there's this, like, history and then, but that's maybe not the entire story kind of thing. And so yeah, I like right. that aspect of it. It was just the um, oh, the Satan goo uh, controlling people <laughs> yeah. by yeah. spitting into their mouths. Yeah. I was like, I'm I'm not on board. <laughs> and you got this. the uh, Asian guy telling uh, racist jokes and yeah. Yeah. Just, and Alice Cooper for some reason. Yeah. But, it's all uh, it, it's all weird. Have you guys covered uh, In the Mouth of Madness yet? No, but Molly just watched that a couple of weeks ago, and she's like, I don't know what happened with Prince of Darkness, because In the Mouth of Madness and The Thing were both great. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So now I feel like maybe we should have started with The Thing and then sort of taken oh, just it did, from Like the there. whole trilogy. Just yeah. did the whole trilogy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on your bio on the Rosemary's Lady site, you list Captain America the Winter Soldier as one of your favorite films. Uh, why are you so right about it being great? I love spy thrillers, and Captain America Winter Soldier is not only a great it's not just a great Marvel movie, superhero movie. It's just a great movie. Even if you don't like superheroes, even if you know nothing about Captain America, you can still watch that movie and love it. And one of the things I liked about it is that like, it was kind of the time it came out in was like, I just remember there being a lot of like, that was the time when there was a lot of stuff coming out about like, the NSA watching people. So it felt oh, yeah. like very, the Russo brothers somehow like figured it out before all of us, because it was just kind of, kind of weird, like reading articles about like the NSA is like, like <laughs> spying on people. And then Captain America saying like, you know, this isn't freedom. This is fear. Yeah. You know, and them watching each other. But I, I just love that movie. I've seen it a million times and I will watch it a million more. <laughs> it's also a story about friendship. It's a story about three friendships, you know, between Cap and Bucky and Cap and Sam and, and Cap and, and Natasha as well. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I like about it is Cap's, you know, he can be friends with everybody. And I think part of the reason I like him is because he's not afraid to sort of he he loves America and that's great but he's also can criticize and say you know maybe we shouldn't do these things and maybe we should do it this way and this isn't the best way of doing things yeah um so i really i love and i love his friendship with bucky i love that even after 100 years um he has not forgotten bucky uh but that's also that was part of the reason I had a little problem with Endgame. I know we're getting a, a little <laughs> off topic, um, but I was a little frustrated uh-huh. that he spoilers 
by the way, for anyone. Spoilers for Endgame, yes. I, you know, I know it's been out for a while. Podcast. Yes. <laughs> but I was like, I, I don't feel like Captain America would go back in time intentionally and just be like, well, you know, my best friend is uh, being tortured and used as a super soldier weapon right. and um, killing Tony Stark's parents. And I'm just not going to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, that doesn't like, feel very Cap-like. Like, I feel like he would do something about it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, he had a lot of years to make up for, I guess, with Peggy. So uh, he, he gave true. the world his his service. But That's yeah, true. there's a few things that don't. It's definitely one of those things that was written to be the end of a movie and not be explored. Like, just forget about this. Uh, right. It's a nice ending. It's, uh, yeah, I was, he, like, he got his happy ending. Like, well, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> I always thought that. And I think that Marvel has done this a little bit, but their their most successful films going forward will be the ones where they try to take their crazy characters and then fit them into specific genres. So to do mm-hmm. the the spy thriller, like you said, with Captain America, um, to have Thor be part of like a wacky, you know, buddy movie space adventure in Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, they haven't really run out of genres yet, uh, but once they do, they can just, you know, rinse and repeat and do it over again. Right. And I think that's kind of, I think, one of the reasons I end up liking Marvel movies more than DC movies, because it it feels like Marvel's more willing to just say, let's not just do a superhero movie. Let's do a, a buddy road trip movie. Let's do a 1960s spy thriller movie. You know, with Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, let's do like a, a coming of age movie. Right. So, and I feel, I feel like DC is kind of, um, I think they've kind of realized that especially in regards to like stop forcing the dceu it'll kind of happen when it's ready (laughs) yeah right yeah yeah just keep just keep trying uh you'll get there eventually hopefully yep yeah just like just you know keep making shazam just (laughs) right yeah (laughs) keep making movies like that and we'll then we'll all be on board it's corny but i i really liked shazam uh, which was corny uh because of the family aspect. I like the fact that they right. played that up. And I think a lot of, you know, if you read any Captain Marvel comics or, or um, a Shazam, I should say, comics, um, recently it's been really dark. And it's been them exploring, like, you know, how, these are kids who are foster kids or whatever, and they have horrible lives. And what can you do to a to a child that'll make a comic reader go, oh, my God. But I like the fact that it was just... Hey, this is, you know, a family is sort of what you make it. You've got a bad guy that hates his family and you've got a good guy without a family, but he finds a family, which is like the cheesiest, you know, most overused thing in films. But it just really works when you also have people in, with big muscles in in, uh, in lightning super suits. Right. I think, yeah, I think they did a good job of saying, let's not make just make a superhero movie. Let's make it, you know, make it something that everyone can enjoy. Yeah. Well, John Glover was in that movie. He was also in an episode of DS9. So I think we're still technically talking about okay, Star Trek. Good, but... good, good. good. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for joining me on the show today. Uh, we met at the Convergence Convention in the Twin Cities this year. Uh, and last year at Convergence, I hosted a live episode of Enterprising Individuals about the TNG episode, The Measure of a Man. And on the episode, we had Melinda Snodgrass, the writer of the episode. And Measure of a Man, of course, is all about the law and its application. And on the show, uh, Melinda said that when she was writing the episode, Gene Roddenberry expressed his concern and dismay about the plot because, according to him, there were no lawyers in the 24th century. There wouldn't be any need for lawyers in the 24th century, he says. Uh, Melinda did not agree with that, and thank God, because she wrote one of the all-time best Trek episodes. Mm -hmm. But... 
I wonder about that supposition if you live in a world of unlimited resources where most, if not all, of humanity's arguments and ills have been settled, would you still need lawyers? Well, I think I think yes, because lawyers do a lot more than just dealing with, you know, property rights and ownership. Um, but it seems something I noticed when I was watching a lot of all like all of the law related episodes is they tend not to do anything with legal formalities. Like <laughs> they are it was just kind of a little shocking. Like they are constantly involving people in um, legal cases where there is an enormous conflict of interest, <laughs> which it would never happen. It was just like, okay, like, okay, this case is being, you know, it's Picard versus Riker in measure of man. And the woman presiding over it is Picard's ex. That right. wouldn't happen. Um, <laughs> but you see, they're in the middle of nowhere in space. There's no one else. That's true. So, well, so one of the things I thought of is like, well, so maybe there, because we see, I think in um, court martial, they hire like an old timey lawyer for him, like an act who <laughs> yeah, seems Samuel to like use antiquated T. books, Barnaby or something. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, and everyone's <laughs> just like, mm, and books. Ooh. You just use the computer. Um, But I, it seems like, you know, maybe when people go through Starfleet, they have to go through some sort of, I don't know if I would say exactly law school, but I would guess they have to take several law related classes because, you know, people are constantly stepping in as like legal representatives, judges, like legal figures, and they seem to have no sort of schooling or background. So my only guess would be like, this is just part of Starfleet is you have to go through some sort of minor law school to graduate or or to become a captain, something like that. Yeah, to be part of like the command program, because like to have Riker just step in and be like, I've seen a couple episodes of uh, Law and Order, I can do this. Like, yeah, that would be something they wouldn't do. But yeah, if you if you are taking on that responsibility of I will one day be in charge of a starship, then yeah, maybe that's part of their um, the red shirt training. Especially if you're going to be a captain and going into other people, like other territories and other planets, oh, yeah. you should probably know their laws. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that was a, a big concern or something I was thinking about. I mean, listeners to Rosemary's Ladies will know that you're an expert in, in demon law and I believe <laughs> uh, ghost law as well. So I was hoping yeah. that you could apply your skills to future law in this case. And we can just take a look at the law or the absence of the law in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do have legal experience in real life. I am a real life <laughs> uh, patent prosecution paralegal. Sure. So... I do have legal experience, <laughs> well, Sorry, great. but I am not allowed to give legal advice. I do have to say that. Okay. All right. Well, right off the bat, patent law is a big question mm-hmm. mark for me. Uh, the idea of the protection of intellectual property or inventions is, you know, it's important. It's enshrined in the Constitution. But since there's no money, I guess, in the 24th century, we're told, is there a reason to exclusively hold the rights to something? Isn't the point of limiting rights for the profit of the rights holder, right? But if there's no money, would you need patents? If there's no money, you might, it, they might do away with patents. But, you know, a, there because there isn't currency, there's a lot more that has to do with um, sort of personal pride and your status mm. in terms of doing, like, 
not being money. the originator of something. Like, yeah, so I th- I would think it would have more to do with I want this patent protection because I want to show that I was the first first to invent. Um, right. But that's not really so. A little bit of patent law there. Um, about six years ago, it changed um, from pre-AIA to post-AIA. AIA is the America Invents Act. Um, oh. It used to be that whoever was the first to invent had the right to the patent, but now it's the first to file. So okay. whoever is has is the first to file right now um, has is like the person who's considered to um, invent it. Right. So that's just a little thing. But something I was also thinking about is, so if you want patent protection now, you would have to, you have to file in every country. So if I want, if I want patent protection in the U S I'd file in the U S if I want patent protection in China, I have to file in China. If I want patent protection in Australia, I have to file separately in Australia. Uh So, Theoretically, if patents were still a thing, you know, you would have to be like, okay, I want to file my patent in the Klingon Empire. I want to file my patent in the Romulan Empire. I want to file my patent in Cardassia. Even if we are to assume like, okay, we've changed it so you don't have to file in every single country. We're just changing it to like every sort of federation or planet because um, like if you want to file... In basically all of Europe, you file in the EP and then can kind of go into different countries like right. Germany, UK, whatever from there. So I would have to think it's going to be kind of similar. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that the Federation would operate somewhat like the the EU in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't have to go to every single planet and that find their find so their patent time. office. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's an episode of Voyager called "Author Author" in which uh, the Doctor writes a hollow novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this time in the show, you know they they do have contact with the Alpha Quadrant, and so he um, finds a publisher and he beams him the uh, novel. And basically, the publisher wants to publish the book, and the Doctor decides mm, maybe I don't want it out there, and the publisher does it anyway. Uh, and screws him over, which is like weird. And so, like the second half of the episode becomes a sort at first a trial about, hey, uh, you published my book uh, without me without my permission, and then becomes like a trial about the doctor's you know, right to own something, uh, kind of his own um, intellectual property version of Measure of a Man. Mm-hmm. Okay, this was kind of shocking to me, just because it, they were like. They thought it was going to be easier to prove that a hologram is a person person instead of proving that this was defamation. Because I was like, <laughs> I was watching this and I was like, oh, just like it's defamation, super easy. Uh-huh. And they're and so they sort of bring that up, and they're like, no, we'd have to prove that we were prove that we were harmed by it. And like that's not that hard. That is <laughs> much easier because yeah. basically all you'd have to prove it like. So there are two different, couple different types of like defamation. Um, sometimes statements are so like inflammatory and egregious that they're just considered defamation. If huh. it's something that's like uh, you did something, inc- somebody's saying you did something incompatible with your business trait or profession, involves se- sexual misconduct or a criminal offense, then you don't have to go forward and prove like I lost 
business because of this job. Right. I lost a job. I lost. I lost business because of this thing. I lost a job because of this thing. So and so thinks less of me because of this thing, and it's pretty obvious that like you know. Janeway's just shooting people left and right. <laughs> she, she killed two dicks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, she's killing people. Like, people are having affairs. You know, people are engaging in acts which I would think Starfleet would be like, we don't want this associated <laughs> right. with us at all. This and, makes us look bad. And just because she's Captain Schmainaway, it, it, that's not enough. Yeah. So that was a little surprising to me that they were like, no, 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 no. But I, I get that it probably makes for a more interesting um interesting and poignant episode if they're like we have to prove that he has rights you know kind of like you're saying it's similar to measure of a man where they have to prove data has rights they have to prove the um the doctor has rights yeah yeah that was that was an interesting episode <laughs> uh i mean even if they issue patents in the 24th century you'd presumably need a lawyer if somebody challenged your ownership of something in that case right. i've always wondered what the legal status of just ownership and property is in the 24th century um i had an author named manu sadia on the show a while back and he wrote a book called treconomics that looks at the hypothetical economy of the federation and so if there's no money and there's no scarcity then what value does ownership have if anybody can have a camaro at the push of a button then doesn't matter if it's your camaro or somebody else's that you're driving it's like those rentable scooters mm-hmm. Oof. that's a, that's a more difficult question again i feel like it you know, it might go back to this, um, like we were talking about the more of the status of like, this is mine, not like, I don't know, it's just, that's a difficult thing, because kind of, I feel like, you know, we show power by like, look at my big house, look at my fancy (laughs) car. But if everyone has money and can have fancy cars and houses, then yeah. What's the point? I mean, that, that's one of the things the points of his book is that if you take away the the scoreboard, then how do you know who's winning? And the point is, it doesn't matter. And there was an episode of um, Next Generation where they wake up three people from cryosleep who are like from the 21st <laughs> yes, century. The, the neutral zone. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And one of them is like, I, I got to call my, I got to call my guy, you know, I'm give me sure a wall my, street journal. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a wall street journal. Like I, you know, I had, I've had money in this high yield savings account for the past hundred, hundreds and hundreds of years. I've got to be rich. And you can just see Picard being like, I don't want to tell this guy what's oh, up. Boy, yeah. And it's sort of interesting watching, especially him, like watching them react to like, well, what do we do now? If we, if we as people, especially like in this time exist to make money, to buy a house, to pay for our car, to do all like to pay back student loans. If we don't have to do that, then is there, what's the point of working? And I think the point is you, you do something you enjoy this oh, yeah. isn't like you don't have to work because you have to. You you ha- you work because it's something that's fulfilling and something that lets you help people yeah. and help the federation and whatnot. Yeah, I I think that that was also um, part of his book as well, which was just like the only you you look at the altruism and like the egalitarianism of Trek society and think, well, that's more science fictional than the warp drive. But if you did take, you know, if, the, if you took the wolf from the door, the end point hopefully uh, would be that humanity would just 
gravitate towards self-improvement. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there would be a period. There's, there, there's got to be like a period in between, I don't know, maybe like uh, First Contact and uh, Enterprise, the show, or Enterprise and Discovery, where humanity goes through this like malaise of like, what do we do now? Like just psychologically as a as a people, we're like, huh. And then you fu- we discover, oh, we can just d- dedicate ourselves to making ourselves better, making the universe better. Uh, I don't know if that includes Archer punching people in the face or not, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could work it in. Right. Uh, you know, I think possession and ownership would really only matter in that case uh, or matter most with like truly rare objects, like things that can't be replicated or unreplicated unrepl- original things. Like everybody right. can have a replicator version of Michelangelo's David, but the original would have value because it's unique. Although in a world where you can make a David at the push of a button, that world's going to have some complicated feelings about what's authentic and what isn't. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm, I'm envisioning like this world of, you know, uh, bird, scooter, Camaros, but uh, personal private property would, you know, would I think it would still be a thing. Like Riker has a trombone. Uh, it may be the trombone that his father gave him or the one that he learned to play on. But if the Enterprise blows up, no more trombone. But then he can just replicate a new trombone for free. He could even scan his old trombone, the one his dad gave him, and replicate that exact trombone. And if you Mm -hmm. were jealous of Riker's cool vintage trombone, you could also push that button and get that same trombone. So I'm sure that like private property is respected, but the idea of something unique and private becomes somewhat meaningless if you can create anything free of expense. Right. Which is just really weird to think about. It's, It's that same thing of... Uh, where's the scoreboard? I got to tell where I'm at. Like, you know, what, what percentage of my loans have I paid back? Yeah, I I was just looking at that this morning. And oh, you really? <laughs> yes. I'm trying, I'm trying to decide uh, if I this should. This is very personal do, for you. <laughs> yes. Close to what, paying off a student loans is, yeah. Close to yeah. my heart. Uh, also, I think literal property, like real estate, would probably have value still. That, for me, is an unexplained wrinkle in their world. You know, everybody can have all the trombones and Camaros that they want. And trombones and Camaros is a good name for something. I'm just not sure uh, what yet. But mm-hmm. not everybody can live Not everybody can live in Manhattan or Santa Barbara or Paris or wherever. There's like a scarcity of literal space, which means that property law must still exist. Yeah, I would, I would think so, especially if I would kind of be interested in like property law in regards to like, well, if someone like people moving, you know, moving to different planets, like, yeah, what, what do you do then? How, how do their law, how do we deal with their laws? And that was something also that I kind of noticed is like, sometimes they're really good at respecting the prime directive. And sometimes <laughs> they just are like, mm, yeah. we're not going to deal with this. The way that the Federation is laid out is never explicitly gotten into like in the shows, but you'd have to imagine that with humans uh, are just are everywhere, you know, there's a human diaspora. So there could be more humans who consider themselves citizens of humanity or the Federation uh, throughout space than on Earth, you know, so right. do they keep Earth law on their colonies? You know, is it like a like a Jamestown situation where I assume, you know, the crown and the king's law or whatever is even in the new world is what you go by, or do Mm -hmm. they have their own version of it? Or is it all under the charter of the Federation? Um, 
I don't know. I think like a civics exploration. <laughs> I don't know if you could do a whole show about it, but that would be very interesting, at least for me. Mm-hmm. The, the TNG episode Devils Do uh, deals in a way with property and contracts. That's the one where uh, the Enterprise goes to a planet and the planet is like really worried because they signed this contract with the devil. And then the right. devil shows up after a thousand years and is like, OK, well, here's the contract. Uh, this is my planet now. So time's everybody line up. up. Yep, yep. Time's up. It's probably the most on-the-nose example of the lawyer Picard trope. <laughs> Captain Picard yes. is a very talented orator, and so we often see him giving a speech or an argument that resolves the conflict without violence. But yeah, it's just, it's put on display. It, he becomes a literal lawyer in this episode. Yeah, this one it was kind of interesting because it's weird that a contract, like, that, you know, this contract was written a thousand years ago. Like, people, I would, my argument would be that, the people on this planet a thousand years ago did not have the legal right to sign away the lives of future, future generations. generations. <laughs> like, like I could write you a contract saying I'm going to sell you uh, Molly's house. Well, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. I don't, I don't own Molly's house. Right. I mean, and these, these are people like, so that was like, I did. I, I don't think they have the authority to do that, but yeah, he, they kind of go a different way with it and just be like, well, we're just going to prove that she doesn't, that she's just a, to quote them, a flim flam artist, which <laughs> I really enjoy. I'm like, I'm every time they use a little phrase like that, I'm like, I'm really glad that that has stayed for like 400 years. <laughs> yeah. Flim flam artist. They're just like, we're just going to prove that she, you know, is just in, just a, like faking her powers and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point about the way that that planet views contracts or whatever. Like if they ever end up joining the Federation, uh, we, we've got a little work to do, I think, with them. It's like, no, you can't make contracts for people that don't exist yet and sign away your your planet or whatever. Uh, also, um, your religion's weird because you think that you can make like a literal deal with the devil and the devil's going to fix everything. But right. The devil's anyway. going to give you, like, good crops and stuff. Yeah, thanks for the crops, <laughs> Satan. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I kind of noticed is, like, you know, they seem to have some of the same legal stuff that we do. Like, in the Federation, at least, it seems, like, innocent until proven guilty. You yeah. are still... Re- I noticed that they're still required um, to have search warrants in um, the... Deep Space Nine episode, Rules of Engagement. They oh, mentioned right. uh, needing a search warrant. Yeah. But something they don't seem to have is our extradition treaties. Yeah, that's uh, the specific focus of um, the episode Dax, uh, which is a first season DS9 episode. Um, and of course, you know, we have to remember that all almost all of the courtroom um, legal situations we're seeing are um, military courts because, you know, our characters are military men and service women. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really see a lot of civilian courts. Um, you know, Picard dated a lawyer. <laughs> we were talking about uh, previously uh, Measure of a Man, you know, Philippa Louvois, who's the prosecutor in Data's trial and works for the Judge Advocate General's office. Um, you know, That's all concerned with military law as well. So I think that would definitely be um, a big part of, at least in Starfleet, you know, a big part of the uh, day-to-day operations there. I think the closest that we get to seeing like criminal law 
uh, being adjudicated is like in DS9, which of course takes place outside of the Federation. Um, mm-hmm. Quark, Quark's always threatening uh, or being threatened by Odo with jail and prosecution. And uh, well, that never goes anywhere. And then Odo's always throwing people in jail, but we don't ever see what happens to them. Mm-hmm. Well, and like in regards to extradition, I mean, they're constantly turning over people that they don't need to or getting out of it for reasons not relating to extradition. Uh, in, so in the episode Hand of Glory, um, there are these Klingon rebels that the that I think blow up a ship and the Klingon Empire wants them handed over. Worf tells Picard that if they are handed over, they will be executed. So the interesting thing is, the, so the Federation outlawed the death penalty. Right. Which, so... This is a case that real life it t- it took place a couple of years after the episode Hand of Glory, but it was um, Suring v. United Kingdom, where it was a man who committed some murders here in the United States, fled to the United Kingdom, but because the European Court of Human Rights had uh, abolished the death penalty, they blocked his extradition from the United Kingdom to the United States until after um, authorities said they would not seek the death penalty. So, so just on like humanitarian grounds. like Right. So, you know, Picard could have made a, it just kind of shows Picard could have made a similar case of, well, this is, we are in Federation territory. Um, yeah. The Federation has a, a ball outlawed the death penalty therefore we cannot um unless you like are to agree that they get a fair trial with the death penalty off the table we're not going to hand them over to you yeah there's in dax there's just these sort of weird bulge head aliens that show up and say dax killed somebody on our planet so we're taking her and she will be you know facing the death penalty if she's convicted and then Cisco's, you know, Cisco should have a lot of power as a commander uh, and the uh, head of the station, but he's basically like, okay, I guess we'll have like an arbitration, you know, to see if mm-hmm. we'll give her up or not. And then the Bajorans can speak on that. They can send a, an arbiter uh, for the provisional government, but it seems so slapdash. <laughs> it doesn't seem like there is like a codified, you know, procedure for doing stuff like this. And international law should be huge in the 24th century. I mean, not only do you have a bunch of different worlds in the Federation who are all under the Federation Charter, but they've probably got their own legal traditions. And you're meeting new species every week that have God knows what kind of legal system they're selling their planet to the devil or whatever. And you've got right. allies and enemies who have their own traditions that you have to have to know about. You know, just think about like the real world examples of some kid, you know, is going to get caned in Singapore, you know, or some somebody is captured by the North Koreans and we've got to get them back. You know, you think about how that's an ambassadorial uh, or international relations thing. But there are teams of lawyers who are all, you know, looking at, at that situation, trying to get those people both satisfied. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of like the um, Deep Space Nine episode Tribunal, where O'Brien is just like oh my God. taken yeah. by the Cardassians and they're like, well... This is what we're doing. Oh, you're guilty. Your execution scheduled for next week. And um... I know it's so crazy. Yeah, their their legal system, the Cardassian legal system, is is brutal and invidious. Uh, and if I remember right, it's you're basically like already guilty. I think yes. And the yep. fact because the fact the very fact that the state has indicted you means you're the guilty party because the state can't make a mistake. And then your right. trial, instead of proving guilt or innocence, your trial is about you atoning and the society seeing justice take place. 
the entire trial is just supposed to kind of be like this kind of like morale boost for him to be like, look how great the government is right, doing. Yeah. Like, we caught <laughs> this criminal. The government is always right. We got your back, Everything's guys. fine, yeah. Yep. Do you know if there's any real world legal systems that are like that? I'm sure there have been before, like, you know, innocent until proven guilty was a thing because I can't think of anything specifically. But yeah, before we kind of made that shift, um, you you were guilty until proven innocent, especially, you know, the thing I'm kind of thinking of is like the witch trials. Like, oh, yeah. As soon as you were accused of a witch, like that was it. You're guilty. There is no way to prove innocence. Yeah, that's so regressive. Point the finger at someone else. Yeah. And also the um, poor O'Brien, this is always happening to him, but there's the one where he, um, hard time, I think it's called, where he um, goes to mind jail. Like he does something, he gets in trouble on some planet and they just summarily like sentence him to 20 years of mind jail. And then they just implant 20 years of like history and memories and experience in your head. So like, boom. And like the civil rights like abuse that that is right just like the idea that i mean i guess you know 20 years is 20 years uh and i guess there's no opportunity for um early release for good behavior or parole or anything like that like what what if you find out later that um it was it was not him you know it was somebody else that did it or mm-hmm. he was falsely uh, convicted How, can you take you can't take those years back it's just so invasive yeah, the, you would think that there's there would be something where like the Federation would be able to argue that like this is like it's it goes against it's so far against due process that we are going to take him back and try him under our own court or something like that. Yeah, because I feel like that's happening to the Federation a lot. I feel like there are episodes where an alien um, character or a non-Federation citizen has done something and the Federation wants to do something with them, but then they have to give them back, you know, extradite them because that's what their home planet or whatever wants. There's a, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's a Voyager episode where they kind of combine hard time and the one episode where where Riker's on trial for uh, supposedly killing the guy's, uh, the lady's husband or whatever mm-hmm. um and they implant basically the memories of the the he's accused of murder tom paris is accused of murder and he has the memories of the victim implanted in him and they will they come up every 17 hours or something like that he has to relive like the, p- the death of the person that he supposedly killed which is just like yeah like, takes that Janeway it takes that pretty much in her stride like she's pretty good at yelling at people uh when they are messing with uh, her people but she's just like oh i guess that's what they do <laughs> yeah they're sometimes they're weirdly adherent to the laws of um the like the other planets and the other uh groups but sometimes they're just like no we're gonna do our own <laughs> thing it, it's just one of the like one of my frustrations is like these enormous inconsistencies, like um, the season, like I think it's in season one of next generation. um, They land on this like idyllic planet. Everyone lives in harmony, but uh uh-oh, Wesley Crusher stomped on some flowers accidentally. (laughs) And they're just like, Oh yeah, he's going to be put to death. Yeah. (laughs) And Picard (laughs) sort of goes back and forth between like, Ooh, do I let them kill this kid? because of the prime directive or do I take him back? And in yeah. the end, he's just like, no, I'm going to interfere and I'm yeah. going to take Wesley back. So they really, and, and the best do part of flip flopping. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, he says, you know, there can be no justice when laws are absolute. 
and the whole thing is interpreted as because the the Edo, the half naked people, have a, a a giant ship or something like a quote unquote god, you know, uh, above the earth, and so apparently like he has given them this tradition to to just put people to death for crushing flowers, and so the Enterprise crew is sort of like being tested as they often were in early uh, TNG and definitely in TOS. Um, and so they stand up and say, no, we're not going to do this because we don't believe that that this is actual justice. And thumbs up. I guess they let him go. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess it turned out. All right. And I think yeah. that's something that they have to deal with that, like well, we have to deal with in current law and they have to deal with, which is the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Yeah. You know, the letter of the law says everyone who commits any sort of infraction has to die. But what does the, you know, it's like speeding is speeding is illegal. Yes. If you are, which is the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, you know, if, if you're speeding because, um, you are trying to get someone to the hospital, is that illegal? Technically? (laughs) Yes. But it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a gray area. Right. And so, yeah, that's something they kind of have to determine is like, well, Yes, you said everyone has to die, but, you know, it's just some flowers. It's flowers. Come it's on. flowers. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the earliest examples of Lawyer Picard, because he basically just throws down about how uh, it's unjust. And I just love the fact that apparently these people have been doing it for thousands of years, but yeah, this bald guy's got a good point. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess we'll let him go. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, well, all right. I, you know, I don't really like it, but okay. You can't do anything. <laughs> I think no, yeah, it's not a legal show. I mean, it's a it's a sci-fi show, um, so I, we can't expect them to get everything right. But I think it's really telling that that jurisprudence and the law must be still important in the future because every time there's a problem or issue, they convene some kind of trial or proceeding. You know, we see them mm-hmm. applying some some standard and some uh, some tradition to to arbitration. Yeah, and they yeah they try to arbitrate a lot, um, which is kind of interesting because it's like you don't need to be a lawyer to be an arbitrator but arbitration is still like a legally binding agreement mm-hmm. um yeah like i mentioned earlier their lack of adherence to like legal procedure is very interesting and sometimes a little frustrating like you know picard's girlfriend um being the judge and like the um uh, I think it's court martial. Yeah, court martial. Yeah. Kirk's ex girlfriend. They're yeah, just always getting right. people's ex girlfriends in to yeah. be like <laughs> the opposite, to be the prosecution. Yeah. Um, because I was like, I feel like, again, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. But is it the? There's a difference. I know. I mean, in real life, between um, like military law and civilian law, like we see in court martial, he does get his goofy book 11 uh lawyer but ultimately it's there's a, like a tribunal you know there's like three guys who basically get to decide uh whether he's guilty or innocent you know in this court martial thing so do you think that it's i know that like we said before it's not you know there are i don't think there's a lot of lawyers writing these episodes except for melinda snodgrass but do you think that if they're getting away with it because it is generally mil- military law that we're seeing and it's just it's different it's not a trial by jury and and just a different um execution of it i think it's different enough yeah i mean it's you know it's 300 years in the future well yeah it's military law and they're dealing with things that are are similar to things that we deal with but are also 
like different enough where people wouldn't immediately be like, that's kind of weird, you know, like determining <laughs> yeah. if data is a person or not. That's something not a lot of people would have. Well, there's no precedent. Be for like, it. I yeah. know exactly what the legal precedent is yeah. on this. But something that did interest me about Measure of Man is that. So something they is kind of going a different direction, but they they mention she mentions um, I don't remember her name uh, Picard's Lavoie Captain Lavoie yes Lavoie um, so she she's referencing this like well you know this uh, legal president this um, document uh, yes the articles of something or other I can't remember yes. what it yeah what it's called. It is, 300 years old <laughs> which means that it came from like our time yeah which is just you know it, it you know and it's just kind of weird to think like because i'm i know there are um there are laws that are still in effect that went you know that became legal in the 1700s yeah. um and there was a comedian who went around tr like breaking old laws um to see if he would be arrested <laughs> and one of them was like you can't carry a salmon um, near Buckingham Palace. Nobody <laughs> nobody cared. But it's just, it's sort of interesting that they're referencing this document that is 300 years old because something I think that we still have this, we, were, we are always going to have this problem. We have this problem now. Technology advances far, far faster than the law can and ever will be able to. Yeah. But it's still kind of wild that they're using a 300-year-old law to determine um, just determine if data is a human, but you know, yeah. that's like, you know, we're the law is always going to be far behind technology, especially when <laughs> technology involves things like our human, our robots, do robots have rights? There's space right. travel involved. So I feel like they're going to need, they need to do a huge overhaul of their laws because they need to be able to catch up with this technology. Yeah, I think that we, when, when I talked to Melinda, I think that we um, theorized, because I asked her about the articles of whatever, and she's like, I, I don't know, I did that's just something that I wrote to make the story go. And mm -hmm. I think we theorized that it was like the um, Siri Alexa uprising of the early 21st century that led to <laughs> this legal decision. But Right. Oh, um, yeah. We were actually uh, on this other Trek show that I have called Backtrekking. Um, we look at like the inspiration behind classic episodes of Trek. And we talked about Measure of a Man uh, in context of the Dred Scott decision from the Supreme Court and how that was a um, inspiration for that episode specifically and historically really terrible decision. So legal precedent isn't always your friend uh, when it comes to looking back at laws from uh, previous times. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I wish they had done – well, so they kind of did um, – I don't remember the episode, but they kind of go back to that when um, Data creates his daughter. Yes, And the they sort of rehash – yes, lol. Lal or lol? Lol, um, yeah. But, yeah, they sort of rehash a similar thing of is, uh, you know, I think um, Deanna Troy says something about, like, well, what's the difference between we, we create – our children. What's the difference between biology and, um, you know, data using like technology? Yeah, I mean, if we already ruled that he is not the property of Starfleet, then 
like any person working like for a company or like a sub a subsidiary or something like that produces something that is owned by that parent company that shouldn't apply because mm-hmm. we we didn't determine whether data was quote unquote alive because no court can or should do that but we don't own him and that's that was sort of the important sticking point in that case but then we have to go through it all over again when he creates another android Yes, it's yeah, pretty much the exact same. They are racist against artificial beings in the 24th century. Come on, you guys. <laughs> well, um, we were talking about having possessions before. If you've got possessions and you're married to somebody who also has possessions and then you get divorced, you need to figure out whose possessions are whose and who mm-hmm. gets to keep the apartment in Manhattan and all those trombones and Camaros. So I'm guessing that divorce law is still a thing. I would guess so. Again, I feel like you would need to have somebody who, you know, what... What is Klingon divorce law like? What is Vulcan divorce law like? Because there, I mean, I am certain there are people, you know, people who are marrying um, different, you know, Klingons marrying Romulans. Right. Uh, Earth, Earth people marrying Vulcans, like uh, Spock's parents. So figuring out, like, divorce law is already pretty complicated, but I, I guess, like, I would be in love, I would love to see um, sort of, like, divorce customs, you know, what if, what if the, what if the um, other species you married, what if they don't have divorce? What if, oh, like, yeah. what do you do then? Yeah, that would, oh boy, that's like, yeah, international law meets divorce law. Um McCoy, Dr. McCoy, uh, canonically, you know, is um, is divorced. And of course, we have the line in Star Trek 2009 about how his wife got half the planet in the divorce or whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, presumably there has to be some sort of arbitration for that kind of thing. It, con- contracts and agreements in general between individuals and entities must exist. And I don't really know how corporations work in a post-scarcity economy, like if you'd even have them, but there must be legal agreements and contracts uh, in between corporations and governments. Right. But kind of like we've seen, it's there's very little for actual lawyers to do. It seems like everything is primarily done through arbitration and mediation. So I guess if we've if we've moved past the need for like money, do we like I guess do we stop needing lawyers? Are we more comfortable sort of re- reaching this agreement where like you give, you know, a more compromise agreement yeah. if money isn't involved, which I think is something that they they seem to um yeah, we seem to to be doing a lot more arbitration and mediation in this, but yeah. I also don't know how interesting it would be to see like, you know, in the um the justice episode with Crusher, like Picard sits down and he, all right, uh, you lawyer, go, go talk to someone. Cause they don't, we don't, <laughs> they have no like actual lawyers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or our main characters just get uh, press ganged into, into being a, an advocate in that case. I have to, I have to imagine he loves it. I think Picard really enjoys okay. like, Oh, thank God. There's another legal oh, dispute. Boy, I get to weigh these things and, and yell at somebody. Yeah. It's going to yes. be great. <laughs> and you get to give a great speech and sort of like just muddle on how, Oh, humanity, how far we've come and yet <laughs> how 
far we haven't come. Yeah, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. There's <laughs> Mining rights were a big concern in the original series. They were always going to some planet that was really rich in dilithium. And you got the idea that just for the action of the episode, they had to solve a problem or please the people of the planet. So they'd go, you get the, I'm guessing, contract to mine this dilithium, which would exclude the Klingons or, or somebody else from doing it. So that has to be some kind of agreement that's made there between the Federation and whatever planet this is that presumably, if it was broken, would require some kind of legal action or arbitration. Right. Maybe like we saw in the um, the episode with the planet that made the devil's deal, they don't, even like when that contract is in dispute, they don't call an extra lawyer. They just call data in to arbitrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know it's a, a society that for 1000 years has been waiting for the check to come due on this contract. You think that with all those good crops uh, taken care of, they would spend a thousand years like having the most finest developed like legal minds go over this contract. And like yeah. they would have like the warp speed version of law just so once the devil comes back, they can get out of this thing. But no, nope, they're just like, oh, no, oh, we're in trouble. Yeah, yes, they're just like, oh, no. oh, well, I guess uh She's here. I guess it's happening. She's here. I guess it wasn't uh, a... Kiss your ass goodbye. It slowly fades into myth, and I guess they kind of realize, like, well, guess it's real. Yeah, that's that's a weird thing, too, to have, like... It would be like... Well, actually, they do this in the original series, don't they? Like, they go to a planet with the Yangs and the comms or whatever, and so the Constitution has become, like, this mythic sort of uh, religion or whatever. So I guess it's kind of like that, but they seemed – they had ties and everything. Like, they seemed pretty sophisticated, but their entire uh, legal system and history is based on this weird myth where they sold the planet to the devil. I don't know. Right. Yes, they have never (laughs) gone over it, like, being like – because I think – I don't remember who it was, but someone is supposed to be going – over like well let's go through like see if there are any loopholes let's see if there's any (laughs) sort of like legal precedent saying that we don't have to that you know they maybe you can't sell people who are your future generations yeah does that planet have slavery i guess we should ask ourselves like there's going to be some disturbing revelations once the episode's over right Well, anyway, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Uh, it's been very educational. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, let's see. We are at uh, rosemarysladies.com, or you can check us out on Instagram at rosemarysladies or Twitter at ladiesrosemary. That's great. Um, anything uh, coming up that uh, you, you can plug here? Um, let's see. We, do, we release a new episode every Sunday. Tomorrow sure. is going to be... Um, the Midnight Meat Train, which is <laughs> with uh, Bradley Cooper and Leslie Bibb. One of the things we talk about is how the title is kind of better than the movie, but the movie is still pretty good. This I must be, least. is this really early, like in, in their careers? Um, it's Yeah, this came out about 11 years ago. Okay. It's based on a Clive Barker short story oh, by man. the same name. Oh, so man. It's, I definitely I, recommend checking it out. Yeah. It's on Amazon Prime. This is like this sounds like a um, what was the like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Next Generation or whatever, when uh, mm-hmm. uh, Renee Zellweger and uh, Matthew McConaughey were in it, but nobody knew about it because they buried it like as soon as they became famous. And this is kind of like it's this is not a bad one, but I had never heard of this until my dad mentioned it to me a couple months ago, <laughs> and I was like, I. I can't believe I've never heard of this. How is Bradley Cooper not plugging this? He's out here doing Hangover 5, and he should be doing Press or Midnight Meat Train. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, So we've got that coming out. And then next week, 
Um, like I said, we like to do bad movies, horror movies, bad horror movies. I don't I don't know if I would consider this a bad movie, but Molly insisted on it. She wants to do 300. Okay, all right. So, like, yeah. I it's kind of a bad movie, but <laughs> yeah, sometimes yeah. I just like to make fun of movies. Well, that yeah, uh, that's that's totally I guess within your your charter. There's something that you did What did you do one of your earliest episodes and I was really surprised that you uh did it and it wasn't a horror movie. Oh, Baywatch. So that's kind of an interesting story. So that was literally the, like the day we started recording. We watched Absentia and we were we had recorded the episode on that. And we were just sort of flipping around on Amazon Prime and we were like, what else can what other episode can we do? And we saw Baywatch and we were like, that looks terrible. Let's do that. <laughs> so that was just kind of how we decided on Baywatch, which was not a good movie. A different kind of horror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in a way, it's the scariest movie I've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> well, uh, listeners, definitely check out Rosemary's Ladies. Uh, it's a great show. And thanks again, Jen, for being on this show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. 